Looking for a workout program? Lucky for you, I know exactly who you should go to, 18alpha fitness. That's at 18alpha fitness on Instagram or 18alphafitness.com. Kevin Edgerton, owner operator, not only has he been through the selection courses as a Green Beret, he's also picked up a whole bunch of medical credentials. And then on top of that, he's been a coach within the Air Force Spec Warfare Pipeline. And I've seen the results, and this, uh, the results are good, very successful. So Kevin is that perfect merger of experience, both as student and as cadre. And he brings that together with the science. And he's always learning as much as he can. Uh, we've had him on the podcast. He'll tell you all about it. Um, so the flexibility, the breathing, uh, the strength, the conditioning. And not only will Kevin tell you what to do, but if you follow Kevin, what you'll realize very, very quickly is that he still lives that lifestyle. He's got an old gray beard, and uh, I'm still scared of him. So head on over to 18 Health Fitness, use your ones ready code, get your discount, and uh, let Kevin help you achieve your goals. Hey everybody, welcome back to the team room. You're here with just Trent today as far as the ones ready crew, but that's okay because we're making up for it by having a guest that I'm super excited about. Um, I don't really want to give too much away. I want to save it for the questions. Uh, but Mr. I think Mr. Now Troy Knight, Australian yes. Combat Controller is here with us. Man, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast, but uh, please introduce yourself and uh, tell everybody a little bit about you. Uh, yeah, former combat control, Australian combat controller, I'll uh, preface it with that. Um, did 21 years in the military. Uh, some of that were, most of that was active duty, some reserve time in there where I uh, took a hiatus and did some private contracting overseas. Um, 13 of those years as a combat controller. Before that, I was Australian Air Force conventional side, so our equivalent of security forces. Um, just because combat control in Australia, you've got to, I think you guys call it cross-train. Uh, you, you've got to be in another conventional job before you can go into special operations. Uh, medically retired at the beginning of last year, been out now for just over 12 months, and spend my time volunteering amongst uh, not-for-profit organisations that look after veterans and emergency responders here in Australia, as well as do some uh, personal life coaching and keynote speaking. Nice. Well, and, and it, admittedly, before we came on, I was stalking your uh, Instagram page a little bit to find out <laughs> some more about you and, and more beyond the uh, just the, the combat control career and, and, and all that other stuff. Uh, but it looks like you were uh, a fighter. It looked like Muay Thai before. Was that before you joined or while you were still uh, in the Air Force? No, no, that was before I joined. I dabbled in a lot of things, um, sport career, like career-wise, thinking I was going to make, oh, sorry, sport-wise, thinking I was going to make a career out of sport. So, yeah, I fought. It, it was only amateur Muay Thai here in Australia. Uh, had 10 fights, eight wins, a loss, and a draw. And, yeah, that was just one of my fights. I just came across... Unfortunately, I've lost most of my videos. They're all VHS, and I just was uh, rummaging through some stuff because I'm moving soon. Found that video and managed to get it uh, transferred over into digital, and I thought, oh, I'll just show the world, have a good laugh at myself. But uh, luckily, it was one of the ones that I won and not drew or lost. So Nice. No, and I feel like we have to explain it because so much of our audience is, uh, you know, the young people looking to join uh, the military. VHS, when we say putting things on tape, it was actually tape. Uh, you know, so go back and, and have a look, but, but I found it interesting because I don't think that that's unusual, that, that draw to combat and then ending up in the military. So, um, what was it about the, the Australian air force that made you want to join in the first place? So I always wanted to join 
both my grandfathers were pretty big influences in my life. One of them served in World War Two, and the other one was just uh, what we call here a, a bushman. So he was very handy in the in the woods, very uh, survival wise. Understood the bush, and he taught me. So he taught me how to shoot, and I always liked. So I used to go shooting, hunting, you know, pigs, um, goats, rabbits, anything, any sort of feral pest here in Australia. So I did that, and then I grew up listening to my other grandfather's war stories about fighting the Japanese in Papua New Guinea, and he just had me mesmerised with the the adventure of you know fighting the Japanese. Obviously, he used to tell me some gruesome stories, which I now look back and go, they were pretty gruesome, and he probably shouldn't have been telling a seven year old that. So, but I mean, that sort of lit the fire in my belly to join the military. I left school, I did an apprenticeship, and qualified in that trade, and then we had East Timor kick off over here, which is a country just north of us. It was occupied by Indonesia at the time. I believe America uh, put some troops over there as well. Uh, so we, we got uh, the Australian government sent the Australian military at the time for a peace enforcing mission. So they went over there. I was still a civilian at the time, so I rushed. I was like, no, nah, I'm out of my job. I'm going to recruiting. Rushed down to recruiting. I actually tried to join up as uh, infantry in the in the army, like in the Australian army. So I got accepted for that. And then due to everyone rushing into the recruiting office, because it, it, was, it was our first real conflict since Vietnam. I think we had a few peacekeeping missions in Rwanda and Somalia. But they were more medically oriented. And there was a few other minor sort of evacuation things. But this was the first real conflict. Look, our special, you know, our SASR, they were getting into contacts, like they were doing cross-border missions and getting into contacts everywhere. You know, our, our divers were, you know, wrecking the beaches, like hydrographic wreckage, like sneaking in before stuff. So you're hearing all these stories coming out. And it just, yeah, it just enthused me even more. So, but what it what it did, there was an influx of recruiting here in Australia. So everyone just rushed out to the recruiting offices and wanted to sign up. So due to that, it was going to be, so that was around, oh, that would have been August or September 1999. And... I wasn't getting into recruit, like what we call recruit training here for the army until I think my position was offered in August of 2000. So that was nearly 12 month wait. That was too long for me. I didn't like that. Um, as recruiters do, I'm sure they do the same in the states. Different services will try and poach you and then try and, and then tr then try and sell you something anyway. So they like they put this video in and he's like or DVD in at the time or whatever it was, and he's like, oh, just watch this. This is on you know what we call airfield defence guard, which is the which is the same thing as security forces. Uh, yeah, yeah, just protecting the air bases, uh, going outside the wire and sort of you know patrolling out and, and things like that, whether it be vehicle mounted or on foot. They said, watch this, and of course they just showed the best parts of the job. So I was like, yeah, and they're like, you've got the same, they're the same scores, like the same, you know, the same aptitude test scores as a rifleman in infantry. Do you want to, do you want to do that? And he said, and the recruit, what really sold it to me, the recruiter goes, I can get you in in February to start your recruit training. End of January, start of February, I think it was. And I said, yeah, let's do it. So I signed on the dotted line that day and then February I was off and yeah, went down the garden path that way. Yeah, it's probably the same thing as over here where it's like, hey, we're basically the infantry of the Air Force. Is uh, I've heard it sold that way, the security forces, and uh, <laughs> that's exactly the way they sold it. <laughs> that's crazy. Uh, yeah, the the overlap, and it, also though, it's, it's crazy because like we had like the same thing after nine eleven, right? Is the the rush to the recruiters, everybody trying to to get yeah. in and to serve their country, and uh, there's always that like moment where we all try to get in. Um, so I'm guessing uh, security forces, uh, while you probably found some opportunities and some cool stuff to do within there, because. 
I think what some people don't understand and what I always try to preach about the military is you can, you can do as much as you want to do. And if you're a performer, basically, no matter where you're at, you're going to find yourself doing interesting things. Um, but what, what was that experience like? And, uh, you know, obviously you wanted to get out of there when you had the opportunity. Yeah, it, it, it was a good experience and I wouldn't change it for the world. People often ask me, oh, you know, do you wish you were in infantry? And it's the same with combat control. Like our two Army special operations elements are the 2nd Commando Regiment and the Special Air Service Regiment. And people ask me, do you wish you went to, you know, those guys? And I said, no, I don't. I, I like the versatility, you know, of combat control. But I, and that's the same with um, SEC for all the security force side of things. I liked it and I had the best times and made the best friends. It was just in the end when I decided to discharge, like I was getting a bit, not disgruntled, but it, I just realised it wasn't the thirst of action. Like I wasn't going to get that outside the wire combat that I that I had that uh, lust for. And at the, you know, and that's where I sort of went contracting. But I, I mean, with that, I did uh, two really good, I did multiple deployments, but I did two really good deployments. One to Iraq where we rolled in. That's what I was saying to you. Like I was only security forces then, but I'm pretty sure we took over from Peaches if he was running the air. I'm pretty sure it was Peaches running the airfield because they had... Yep. They had the sickest Humvee. It was cammed up, and I remember just sitting there going, that Humvee, and it's, you know, doors off, because obviously it was all unarmoured back then, and they had sort of their own handmade cam job, and, the, yeah, and the, the the two controllers that were there, it was awesome. So we had a bit of a chat to them, so, but, um, yeah, that was good. And then the other one was the tidal wave. We went to do a humanitarian uh, disaster relief job, and they wanted us over. I'd done a close personal protection course, so a bodyguard course with the, the SEC4 guys. So I've got a lot of jobs getting around just being bodyguards for generals and things like that. So, yeah, I went to uh, Band Arche to be, as part of the security team, to be a bodyguard. And then we realised there's no threat because Band Arche at the time, they had rebels fighting against Indonesian government. So Band Arche is the northern part of Sumatra, which is the northern island of Indonesia. So... Went up there and did that, and that turned out to probably be, out of even out of all my combat tours and from the special operations side, that was probably one of my that was probably my favourite, my most rewarding. Um, like I wasn't even armed, but we just it was like choose your own adventure. We were just helping out the locals, helping out everyone we could. Um, you know, we were there. It, the tsunami rolled through on uh, Boxing Day two thousand and four. I think we were in we're in the capital of Medan two days later, and that third uh, the third day. So what was that? What would that be? The twenty, you know, twenty ninth of uh, December. I was in Bandarche, and the devastation that Mother Nature can do, as you, as you'd know, uh, is just unreal. Like this tidal wave, it remapped the coastline, and we were finding fishing trawlers six kilometres inland. We were still we helping the Indonesian military. We were pulling you know, whole families of dead bodies out of cars um, that were turned upside down, and these cars were miles inland and it's, yeah, it was just unbelievable the power of that wave and what it how it just you know deconstructed and destroyed uh, the archonese coastline so geez yeah i remember i think i watched the the movie uh, you know i'm we're pretty far removed from that so it was like a movie for us with like ewan mcgregor you know who we love because of his brother yep. um but uh yeah uh, it, it looked nuts out there but i i wanted to, to touch on why that was so rewarding for you and i find that there's two things um, that people really love in our community. And one is doing the most good possible or, you know, accomplishing as many missions as possible and the problem solving, problem solving element. And I, I find that when I'm in those situations where there's like, you know, choose your own adventure, do what you need to do to get the job done. And, uh, you know, you have that flexibility. Uh, 
those, that, I mean, for me, at least the, those times are always super rewarding. Like, like you were saying. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, and that's, that's what it was. And we were just sort of plugging gaps and helping out wherever we could, you know, one day we're sandbagging a river with the Indonesian Navy. The next day we're helping out with a multi-country as well as all volunteer organizations, aid tents. You know, I was watching, they ran out of anesthetic and I was watching an Indonesian man who had gangrene on one of his fingers and they amputated his finger and he didn't even wince without anesthetic. It, did that and you know there was even a time i ended up on the uss abraham lincoln so they pulled in to like the, the americans were there and they were helping out and you know they were using their their sea kings or sea kings seahawks seahawks to ferry yeah. aid around to their outer lying uh, agencies and we just met one of the we just met one of the fast jet pilots and because they couldn't fly because they were in Indonesia, they were using them as like LOs in the in the provinces and just saying, hey, and they were flying around going, hey, look, we need aid here, and they were coordinating it. And we met one of the fast jet uh, squadron leaders, and he's like, do you want to come out in the ship for a couple of nights? And we're like, yeah. Uh, you know, a nuclear uh, aircraft carrier, like we don't have that capability here. So we rang up the boss on the sat phone. The boss is like, yeah, go for it. He, bring, he brings in a helo. We all just jump on this helo. And we'd been out there for about two weeks at the time. So we hadn't showered, just been living off uh, rations and like rat packs and stuff like that. Get on the ship, get the full. He goes, right, first things first, you blokes stink. We're getting you some, uh, we're getting you some flight suits and we're going to wash your cams. So got our cams washed. They pressed them for us and everything. And then so we're kicking around in these flight suits. It was quite surreal getting a full tour, met the captain, sat in the captain's chair, um, yeah, and just cruised around and sat on there eating fresh food and just – and then watching air-to-air videos of guys that had been in the Gulf War and actually shot down, you know, Iraqi MiGs and things like that, and they're showing us bombings from Iraq War and everything. And I'm just – yeah, it was a brilliant – the boss – when I rang the boss, he said, oh, just do one night there. And myself and the other guy were just like, nah. No, we're not. We're we're, we're going to do one more night. <laughs> so we just sort of, we'll just, you know, we'll beg for forgiveness rather than, than ask for permission. And we got back and you know landed landed on the uh, the airfield there, and we're just strutting. Out. We kept our flight suits on, so we just strutted out in our flight suits, and the boys are just shaking their heads, going, "You dickheads." <laughs> yeah, but you got to take the opportunities when they come, and uh, you know. You've been chewed out exactly. before. It's not going to be that big of a deal. Just take the heat, and uh, it's yeah, probably 100% worth it, I'm sure. Yeah, it's not like he was going to send me home for it anyway, so. Right, yeah. What are you going to do? Send me home from this this terrible situation? Yeah, Oh, exactly. man, that's that, – I mean, to, to everybody out there, that's that's one of those things. And I, I, I know I keep harping about it, but, man, just, like, being good at something and putting yourself in those situations, no matter what you're doing, that's the only way – uh, to get stories that are that are just ridiculous that no one's gonna you know believe or understand later on down the road, um, but um, move, moving forward from that, how did uh, how did the Australian CCT thing happen? Like, how did we even? How did so, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. So what happened? Um, obviously, you know a lot about it. Come from the special airmen background, special warfare airmen background. We had to use, like, our special operations guys being SASR and 2 Commando, uh, being the shooters, they had to use U.S. combat controllers as their JTACs. And, and special oper- I think they had a couple of special ops TACPs from the, from the 17th at that stage because that was before they went over to 724th. So I think they had a couple of them. And then, so word on the street has it that our special operations commander had a, was drinking. So we were using, obviously, U.S. CCT and, you know, the 
word got out, it's like, why don't we create this capability ourselves? And at that stage, we didn't have an accredited JTAC course. So we had guys that had done FAC A, but were pilots, but they weren't, they weren't accredited in accordance with the MOA, so they couldn't technically drop bombs off US aircraft. So word has it on the street that the Special Operations Commander Australia and the Air Commander Australia were at a mess function. So the picture about 20 beers deep, and a bet went on, and Special Operations Commander Australia goes, I bet you, to the Air Commander Australia, I bet you you can't create a Special Operations capable, you know, capability you know, similar to what the US did with, with combat control because we need JTACs. And at, by that stage, the, I think the schoolhouse had got its accreditation, so the accreditation team came over and fully accredited the schoolhouse with running the JTAC course. So that happened. That's the that's the word on the street. I can't can't verify it. That's what we were told. But that was also at a mess, mess function. So I like the story. So that's the one I tell to everyone. So um, so yeah, it stood it up and it stood it up as a special tactics project because originally it was you're going to be a full special tactics squadron, and but then they changed to go to um, four squadron, which has its lineage back to World War One. It was an Australian squadron of uh, biplanes which did the first uh, out-of-ground bombing. So they sort of kept the lineage with the FAC, a, the FAC A and the JTAC side of things in that way. So in the beginning, we did that, and we re- reverse-engineered it compared to what the US CCT did, where obviously they were air traffic controllers first, you know, did the landing zones, drop zones side of things, where because we had the need for JTACing, um, we were JTACs first. So essentially in the early days when I went through and did my rotations to Afghanistan, we like we hadn't done survey or we hadn't done a, you know, an air traffic control package either. So we were just special operations JTACs. And it wasn't until, mm-hmm. I think, after my first rotation. So the special tactics project stood up in 2010, 2010. Oh, sorry, 2007. In 2009, it stopped being a project and became four squadron um, Royal Australian Air Force here in Australia, and that's and that's what combat control belongs to. So, but it wasn't until uh, two guys, and I'll give a big shout out to them if they're listening. V Dub and Sully came out. There was another uh, US combat controller by the name of Mike Anderson. So two of our guys went away with Mike Anderson, who was at the three twentieth at the time, did a whole survey jump thing up in northern Queensland, and they came back fully spun up on survey. They go, we need this survey capability. So then we reached out to the schoolhouse, put a heap of paperwork together, and they, uh, the schoolhouse, combat control schoolhouse there at uh, Vietnam at Fort Bragg, and sent over V-Dub and Sully, and they were obviously experts in their field, and um, they, they taught the first sort of, mo- they were the mobile training team, taught the first survey. So that was the next step, and then we run, uh, we run it, we call it assault zone, uh, assault zone control because we're not accredited air traffic controllers, but we can run an airfield because we don't want the accreditation, like the, the ratings, because it's just with JTACing, with parachuting, with shooting, there's just too many competencies to keep up. So like the, the boys have got, like it's internal competency that we've got to do, or currency, I should say. Um, there's internal ones that they've got to do per year when they're on a team. But when, when you rotate from you know, a precision strike team onto global access for us, you, like precision strike, you normally let your... Your, you know, your survey and your um, air traffic control sort of, you know, go by the wayside. You keep your insertion skills up and obviously you keep shoot, move and communicate stuff up and vice versa. You normally, when you go to global access, you sort of drop in the precision strike thing, you know, you're losing your weaponeering. You, you, you keep your currency so you can still, you know, have as many controls it is per six months or year. I don't even know now. But, um, and that's the way it went. 
So we reverse engineered it. So, and now just watching the boys, you know, I was old map and compass, watching the boys with tack and they're just, they're lazing something and it goes straight to tack and then they're just passing coordinates and it's, you know, you know, time to kill the uh, the kill chain is just shortened so much. And even with survey, like, you know, we used to put do it all by hand. You know, we'd be with yep. inclinometers like this, doing, you know, doing everything. And, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And then, you know, the dudes are getting the kestrels out, you know, doing data readings and everything like that. And, you just, and now everything's just digitally linked to that tablet. But, you know, before I got out, because I had all my supervisor calls, what it did was it just and you would see this? It just drags everyone's head down there, and it's like, hey, the, yep. the battlefield and the world's out there. You know, that's only a, an aid, a tool. And it, it, you know, it used to do it to me when I was starting to learn it as well. Yeah, it's crazy. No, it sounds like it's it, it's very very similar to the uh, all the combat controllers that I know. You know, like uh, when we're at the STS, it's it's you're on the the survey side, the the global access side, or you're on the precision strike side. And and like you said, it's a it's a lot to to try to cram into your head. I you know like I don't think I understood how difficult it is to be a good JTAC until my second rotation when I really uh, was hanging out with uh, my combat controller that I was deployed with. And I went to his room and like and saw all the stuff he has to do. And I was like, there's no way you can do this and keep on top of all your survey stuff. You know, like, because in my career field, every once in a while, someone will be like, why don't, why don't we just become JTACs? And I was like, pump your brakes. Because, you know, like the combat controllers are the, you know, and the, the soft TACPs, the level of JTAC that they are, and, and I'm not trying to throw shade at anybody else out there, but if I got to pick a JTAC in this world to save my life, like those are going to be the guys, you know, because of how good they are and how dedicated they are. So I was just, I was just throwing well, it out there. Yeah. I'm sorry. I was going to say those two groups throw enough shade at each other anyway, don't they? Oh, well, you know, TACPs and CCTs, they're always jumping out of there every time I see them. It, you know, like brothers are going to fight. It's how it is, you know, yeah, but like exactly. if, if an outside yeah. entity comes in, you know, and, and, uh, you know, some folks from the Navy want to start talking smack. Yeah. You're going <laughs> to take it from all the air force guys. So, um, yeah, uh, V probably knows more about surveys or has forgotten more about surveys than I'll ever learn. And, um, that's a, that's a kind of a tough course, the, the math and everything else. And, um, yeah. I guess my question is now I'm just like going down the rabbit hole with people I know. Um, what was the selection like? Like, how did you guys pick the first batch of, who was going to be a combat controller? Uh, how did that team like get yeah, put together? It's and, and the battery of tests. Let me say, if I had to do the battery of tests, and this might be creeping excellence, because uh, I had a lot to do with the implementation of the new test when I went over to the the training side of the you know when I left the operational side and went training. Um, the battery of tests today that you do, there's like eight different aptitude tests. And yeah, like problem solving, critical thinking, um, you know, dual audio, and you've got to, and then you've got memory on top of that. And then, so we're linked in with our uh, local university down in Newcastle, and the university is like someone's writing their thesis on it, that's for sure. And we're just the guinea pigs, but they've created this computer program, and it's about following a ball around, how many colors or what, and then clicking every time in the, you know, right, uh, a flashing light comes in in the right corner. So it's all that, you know, multitasking, and then, they judge it also. Yeah, there's they've got an algorithm basically which judges it on, yeah, how many balls you get correct first, how many clicks in the light you get, and then yeah, it goes from there. So, but for me, it was there was uh, some specialist air traffic control test which you had to smash out in six minutes, and then there was a series of special forces, the ones the ground special forces test that you already had to do. Um, that's just the aptitude wise. Then we had what we call the special forces entry test, which is a 
pretty much 30, uh, let's say 24 hours of just physical testing, but it's test after test. I don't know if that's – is that your ASFAB or, like, is that – what's what's the one for the career field? Like, it's just push-ups, heaves, you know, a 3.2, so a, a two-mile run in, in boots, um, armour and rifle, things like that. So you've got to do that. Just bef- That's just to get on selection. Yeah, so we selection. have the uh, – sorry. No, no, that's right. No, you asked that the ASVAB is just the um, the mental test to get into the military. And then we have the okay. IFT, which used to be the past, which is just your, your pull-ups, push-ups, uh, sit-ups, run, yeah. and your swim. And then once you get into the pipeline, we have that, um, like the operational fitness tests, uh, events where with the weighted runs and, and all that other stuff to make sure that you're athletic and you can carry weight and all that other stuff on top of the, the swimming and uh, the cows and everything like that. Yeah. So, yeah. So for me, then, uh, selection is three weeks long. And look, it doesn't have to be exactly 21 days. It's just when they feel, when the staff think, you know, and seeing it from the back end, because I've been, uh, you know, directing staff on it post, obviously down the track. I, I was the senior sort of one of the, like the equivalents of the two commando senior selector. So uh, we do our selection is because the Australian military is so small, we do a joint selection. So we do a joint selection with second commando regiment. And it consists of like an individual phase, and mind you, obviously you get all the beastings and all these as well. So you're never getting a full night's sleep. And as you as you know, so yeah, it's an individual phase which tests weapons, um, you know, military appreciation, your knowledge, under like anything to in, understanding, you know, you know, T triple C side of things, everything like that. So it tests you, you get tested. Uh, there's another battery, so you redo. A battery of tests, but you redo them without any sleep. Like you do, they wake you up in the middle of the night. And you've got to redo them, even though you've done that same test before. You've still got to redo them, and they match the school. Like because there's all psychologists. It's not just uh, for us, and I assume it's the same for pipeline and selection for you guys. Is it's not just the, the, the like it's not just the people from the schoolhouse. It's guys from the actual units that are being um, that are on the directing staff, and then you've got psychologists on top of that, which provide that third layer. And because the psychologists are ninety percent civilian. And have, have no idea. They're just providing pure information from the you know the behavioural and psychological psychological background. So yeah, then you sort of go into a uh, navigation phase again, individual. It's basically what you know what we consider a long walk. So it's heavy pack. You're carrying forty to fifty kilos of weight. Look, it's all up with water. Maybe not that much. Let's just say forty kilos. What would that be? About ninety pound. All up. Yeah. Um, that's just in armour and, and pack. Then you have got your rifle, and you probably over those. It goes again. It goes three to five days. It can get cut, uh, roughly three to five days. It just change. Every selection changes, so you can sit there and talk to people off the selection before, and it's totally different. And but you're covering hundred to hundred and twenty kilometres, so uh, not too bad over those few days. So again, that wears you down, and then you move into what we call demarcation, which is food and sleep sleep deprivation. That goes three to five days, so you don't sleep or you don't eat uh, for three to five days, and in that is that's. Like you get put into your team, or yeah, you know, uh, for that, and then you you move around as a team. Like you still got to patrol around as a team. Some 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 stands you're allowed to walk up the road, but they're all just problem solving activities. You know, you might be training indigenous forces, things like that. So it's it's varied. You might go through you know total the total different scenarios each scene. So yeah, and then that that finishes with obviously the the long walk out, and then you just. Yeah, you're stomping about 20 k's out, or you're running. You're running with a jerry can or two jerry cans. It just depends. Like I said, it varies each year. You know, some people sit there and get a bit funny about talking about it. I'm going, well, 
it doesn't matter because the selection that and these are the selections that I was on. I haven't been I haven't been a uh, directing staff on one of them for about two three years now, and it's already like I know it's already changed. I'm just talking about the ones that I've seen. So. You know, people can watch the podcast from Australia and go, oh, I know everything that's happening. It's like, day one will be this. It's like, yeah, but it might not be. It's, you know, my information yeah. is from when I was there, so. Well, and it, and it's by design, right? And it, it's funny because I, I always tell people, like, I could, I could tell you exactly what's going to happen during the selection process, but three days in, you're not going to remember any of that stuff anyway. You're just trying to survive and put one foot in front of the other and solve the problems that we're putting in front of you while you have no sleep and your, your food has been uh, taken back and and you can watch it and know what's going to happen all day long. But until you're in that situation, you know, you don't really know how you're going to react and we're going to be watching you to see how you react. We're going to be asking your teammates what you're like when we're not around. Uh, So you got to perform no matter what, like whether you, you, we can't give you the answers to the test because we're going to beat you down and then still expect you to perform. Like that's the whole test. So um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, 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 no, no. I was going to say it's it's funny exactly like that. You know, one of the one of the tests everyone knows is water testing in there. Like water is the biggest leveler for any person in my eyes. It, it you know it doesn't. It's easy on the body because you're not getting a shock in your joints. But water just freaks people out for some reason. I was lucky; it doesn't freak me out. But everyone knows there's like a underwater knot tying test on selection. So you've got to tie, you know, X amount of knots, and it's at the bottom of the dive pool. So we've got divers down there, you know, they're, they're safe. Our clearance divers sit down there on the bottom. And you've got to go down, grab a piece of rope, which is uh, tied onto, you know, a bar, untie it, then tie a knot. So a simple reef knot, a bow line or something like that. But you've still got to dive, to, the diving down and sitting on the bottom because you can't do it above water. So you've got to dive down, blow your air out, which isn't, and a reef knot takes you five seconds. I could tie a reef knot as I push off up to the surface sort of thing. And then you've got to show the instructor, and they go, yep. And they give you the thumbs up, take the rope off you, dive back down, grab another rope, you know, do a bowline. There's five knots. Yeah. And before that, you're jumping off like a, I don't know, 10 or 20-meter platform into the water, which freaks some guys out as well. And then once you finish, you've got to dive underneath the Zodiac because the instructors are sitting in sort of zods lined up um, you know, across, breadth, uh, across the uh, pool. And... Yeah, you got you got to dive under there, and that just freaks people out. And then, yeah, we do another. There's another PT session that you do with rifles, like just the red guns, you know, the plastic red guns, and just mm-hmm. people holding something and trying to tread water. Just absolutely, and just because you're in cams as well, that changes things. And you can tra- you can tell people this is going to be there. They can train for it, but even added stress of being on there, just the whole the whole situation. Like that's why I sit there and go, doesn't need to be a super secret. Because everyone knows you're going to put your pack on your back and go for a walk. So, yeah, yep. everyone knows you're going to do navigation, land nav, but you still got to do it. And that's the part, yep. like, your brain breaks before everything else breaks. Yep. It's designed to peel back the layers so we can see who you are under that stress. And uh, it's going to happen no matter what. So um, so you, you made it. Obviously, you made it through selection. Uh, the, yep. the, one, of, one of the first groups of, of people to go through Australian combat control. So what was it like? I mean, I'm assuming... Uh, they were they were pretty keen to get you guys out there to to be the the first yeah, round of JTACs. Did they throw you right into the fire? No. So we had a uh, a year long. So it's now for a combat controller start to finish is minimum two years. When I went through because we didn't have we didn't have our blue pipeline. We just had what we call the reinforcement cycle, which is a green side of the pipeline. Uh, so I went through that. That takes care of our insertion courses like driving, parachuting. 
you know, all your free fall, um, takes care of your amphib stuff. Like, we don't have a subsurface capability, but combat control doesn't anyway, and we don't want one because it's just another insertion means to keep up. So we got, but we got a yeah above surface. But you know, as you know, being sitting in a zodiac for twelve hours after you've jumped over the horizon, and, and it's not fun. So you do an amphibious operators course. Um, what else do we do? Demolitions. So you do basic dams, and you do breaching dams. Go on to that. Then we've got our um, precision strike direct access uh, package, which is the close quarter battle, uh, close quarter fighting. But the close quarter fighting is based around. It's created by a guy called Paul Kale. And it was based around, obviously, fighting in your equipment. So it's not just get on the ground and geese and we're just going to have a roll. It's you're fighting in your body. I mean, it's all about trying to work in pairs as well, you know, holding guys down and assist, assist. But, yeah, we talked highly about the what we call the reactionary gap where, you know, you come into a room and, you know, stoppage. But if someone's within that 6.3 metres, it's proven that I, no matter the quickest shooter in the world, can't get his pistol out and shoot before if someone decides to already charge. Like, if they're already charging at you, then you've got no hope. So, you know, it's all about obviously hitting them with your rifle or if you've got to go down, then, you, you know, your sock pee dagger comes out or something like that and or just even whacking them with a magazine if you need to. So, it's a, like, it is wrestling and jiu-jitsu based. However, uh, it's obviously all in body armor and everything like that. So It's that violence of action, right? And that's something you learn in the, the shoot house real quick when they have the op four that can grapple with you is that when they're coming at you, you have to meet that with the, the same level or, or the exceed their level of violence. And it's kind of cool, though, when you have all your body armor on, though, if you if you really get into it, like you weigh, I don't know, 40, 50 pounds, you know, 20, 25 kilos more than your body weight. And uh, once you learn how to use it, it's uh, pretty effective. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty good. We're on a, a training exercise for it was actually G20, and when I think Obama came over, so we're, I was on the counterterrorism team then, and was working some jets overhead. Like we had some jets flying a, a cap, and had the um, had an ISR bird up there as well, protected. And we're just doing some training activities. So we did a hit on this building, you know, hostage rescue scenario. Came in, and obviously you got role players, and we've got target safety, so everyone's very safe. And uh, we were, we were using it was all simunition, and they had simunition as well. So we've come in hit the target, and obviously everyone's a threat until proven otherwise. So even the hostages, you sort of, you know, you just got to prove them not to be a threat. One of the role players, he was briefed to do something, uh, just just go along with the game and just be a, um, you know, a civilian caught up in there. So just he wasn't hostage, but he was there. And he was given to me because obviously they're fighting through the building, and this was sort of just on the top floor, and I needed to stay up so I could try and keep comms through the open door, through the fire door. And he, was, he decided, as role players do, to run his own scenario. So he started being, started being a dickhead. So I just I sort of picked, picked him up and threw him to the ground. The, the guy was 60 kilos dripping wet, so probably 135 pounds at most, if that, and not muscly. So I just sort of picked him up and you know, gave him the old DDT wrestling move onto the ground sort of thing. And then I've just gone stuff this. And I've always wanted to do it, and it was just the opportunity. And I just... Just basically flopped on a dream, but I did a jump up, got vertical, uh, sorry, horizontal, and then just went bam and just landed. And I could just feel every bit of life and wind come out of him. And, and he, he gave this little whimper, and I've just gone assist, assist. So then a mate of mine comes over, he's fully kitted up, he's just bomb dived on me as well, and we've flipped him over, plastic <laughs> casting and stuff like that. And I'm looking up at the target safety, like the safety officer, and I'm like, was that supposed to happen? And, and he's pissing himself laughing, and he's going, mate, he didn't stick the script, so stuff him. Oh yeah. Yep. 
st- stick to the script. Otherwise, bad things going to happen. You don't want to mess with oh, these guys. Yeah, because we get our we get the reservists in, and they pay them reserve days. They ask for volunteers. I would never, after being on some of these missions, like just training missions, I would never volunteer. Uh, like that's the only time I've got to do it. But I've just seen. Yeah, some of the boys, like people just give them, you know, they just push back an inch sort of thing. They all want to be the hero and they just get slammed. Yeah. Well, I mean, everybody's running at 11, right? In their brains, you know, like, you know, you yeah. come through a door and everything. It's just ready, set, go. Man, I, mm. I'm, I'm having too much fun here, but there's there's other things we got to get to. And I'm, I'm sorry. No, uh, as right. a combat controller, uh, deployments. Uh, I've seen some pretty radical footage you have on on your page. Uh, how many yeah, deployments yeah. did you have as a uh, controller? Uh, as a combat controller, I did three deployments, um, two to Afghanistan, one to Iraq, and then a couple of sort of minor ones, which were sort of just HADR side of things. But, yeah, the, the combat ones was two in Afghanistan, first one in 2010, second one in 2012, and uh, Iraq was 2015. I was due to go back for my third. I was the next rotation over. We'd just done work up, and then the Australian government decided to pull the pin. Um, around that time, so I missed out. Yeah, 2015 in Iraq. Where uh, where were you about ish? If you can, if you don't mind. Uh, saying. I was in. The, I was in. The, I was in. Um, first of all, out at the airport at Bayat, with in the glass yeah. house there, because it was a joint SODAF mission. Um, yep. We I worked with a couple of combat controllers over there, and obviously we had Navy SEAL. I think Navy SEALs because Navy SEALs and MASOC. Oh, and the, we had the CRIF over there as well. We had um, two of the CRIFs rotated through, and then I moved in. Because of the way the, the stupid setup that it was, because of, the battle space was owned by conventional forces, and they were just, and it was just big ego in there, and they wouldn't let the soda get in there, so they end up running this strike cell out of out of the fob in the green zone, and I can't think of the name of the fob, but so I got pushed into there as the Sofano. So there was myself, another combat controller. Um, he was a stow, one of the best dudes I've ever worked with, nicest guy. You know, college athlete, college wrestler, college lifter. You know, just you know those jets that are always above everyone else. Doesn't try to be, but the really good combat controller. I believe he's he's gone to the seven twenty fourth at the moment. So, um, I think I know who you're talking about, and he's one of my favorite people on the planet. Looks like Bradley Cooper. Yes, yeah, actually, uh, yeah. We were uh, we were that because we came through to do a a, a survey uh, ah. on one of the airfields in country while you guys were there. But yeah, yeah, he's yeah, he's so, one of my favorite yeah. people. Then, yeah, and then there's two Navy SEALs. It's I'd worked with SEALs before, but uh, hadn't deployed with them technically. Like we, you know, done a few. Um, the guys that were in Afghan, uh, sorry, Afghan, were doing you know the direct action side of things. Um, the commando mission, I think it was called. We'd do some joint stuff with them, and yeah, you because know, I'd always link in with the combat control over there. So I had a bit to do. I was more in, you know linked in with the combat control and was the SEAL. So this was the first sort of long time I'd been with the SEALs, and it's. Everything you see on the movies is true. Perfect hair, long hair, don't care. And they just, all they did was just run their mouth the whole time and just talk sh- talk smack to each other, talk smack to everyone in the strike cell. And they just didn't give a fuck. It was pretty funny. Yeah. No, good dudes, as long as they're on your side. It's, uh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. What's, long, uh, what's, what's the most? I'm sorry. Behind. Yeah, well, well, yeah, let's uh, <laughs> save that for another podcast. Uh, <laughs> I think everybody knows what we're talking about. Um, no, just, what was your most? Little, uh, yeah, there's 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 some stuff there, uh, but I'm sorry. Uh, what was your most memorable uh, deployment or uh, experience as a as a controller? I, I'm assuming you you become a JTAC. Like, what was the payoff? Um, 
so I dropped bombs on my my first my first mission that I went out in 2010 turned into a big we went into a place that hadn't uh the last people that were there was a dutch outpost six years prior and they said just go in it wasn't like a we weren't hitting a specific target they said just go in it was what we called a disrupt mission so it was just go in and sort of you know sort of strike strike to know sort of thing like you know find some intelligence see what's in there and we got into pretty much five days of shit fights and that's where i dropped my first bombs and yeah got blown over by got out in the landing zone like i was hitting targets because we were getting pizzled um, we were getting hit on the like we weren't getting hit in the landing zone. Other elements were sort of getting hit because we had it was a sort of company size or com- you know I say a company, but it's a c- commando company is not that big anyway. But um, we're sort of on the landing zone, so I had a, a pair of A tens and AH sixty fours, and they're just pulling up targets. So I'm just clearing them, clearing them hot all the time. So doing multiple strafes. I get out in the landing zone because we couldn't get out for – we tried to get out for two days before that. We literally ran out. We, we had run one radio per team. We were down to um, – because we couldn't get resupply because we were only supposed to be in there for 24 to 36 hours. And we had, so, as you know, you, know you, you suffer, you eat up and drink up before you go on, on target, and then you sort of minimise that because you're carrying batteries, ammunition, demolitions, all that stuff. And, yeah, so – we pretty much went two days without food. We're drinking water. Um, some of it, were, like we had puri tabs at the time. We didn't have the purification straws or anything. And but we we're drinking water out of the Afghani sort of wells and stuff. How any of us didn't get sick, I don't know. And we pretty much starved. So we were down to one radio per team. So the team commanders could commun- uh, uh, you know, communicate. And I think most guys, like I. I wasn't in the thick of it. I got shot at and got to shoot at people from my position, but I wasn't in the thick of it by any means. So, you know, redistributing magazines. Most of the shooters had probably two magazines, three at most by that stage. Um, and just because the, what, the air went red, so it was just dust storms. And then finally on the fifth day, the, like the bosses on the ground just going, look, you need to get us out. Um, by that stage, I'd already dropped. So I'd, I'd had two 500-pounders off uh, some Hornets, and then I had a B1B come on, and I did three 500-pounders off a B1B. I remember the B1 checking on, and we didn't do any bomber cas at the JTAC schoolhouse at the time. So he comes on, he goes, yeah, bone. And I'm like, bone? I'm pretty sure. I said, confirm bone? I'm, I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's a B1. Like, that's a strategic-level nuclear-capable bomber. Like, what the fuck's it doing here? So it checks on, and it's checking on it, you know, Flight level, yeah, thirty, yeah, you know, sort of angels, yeah, you know, flight level three hundred, yeah. sort of thing, thirty thousand feet. Anyway, so I give it its coordinates, and I just went, sort of, I just went, yeah, I know where the area is. We've been hit there before. They've got a heavy. It was a fifty cal minimum up there, maybe something bigger. We don't know. And it was just shooting down as the boys were clearing, sort of north. And you could hide in the compounds, but it was taking chunks off. The Afghani koalas are built up with that much mud. Like I've hit them with eighty fours, and they've done nothing. So this thing was taking chunks off, and. So I went, yeah, I'm just going to send it this time. And yeah, I, asked, I said, look, I need this taken out. What's your recommendation? They said, yeah, we'll go triangle pattern, three 500-pounders onto that area. And they had the coordinates. took forever to run in because those things have got to, you know, pretty much fly back out to, say, Guam just to, you know, turn around and run back in. Yeah. Drops the bombs, levels, like takes part. It took part of the mountaintop off. That's how, that's how good it was. <laughs> and all the boys are over the radio just cheering, going, yeah, that's awesome. And so that was all like day four. Day five, yeah, the bosses are like, look, we, we either need to resupply if you want, to stay, want us to stay in here, or we, like, we definitely need to get out. We're pretty worn out from fighting. We've had five days of fighting. So, yeah, we're on the, on the LZ. 
I'm hitting stuff, you know, peppering the LZ, hitting all these uh, little spotters and, you know, people up there sort of taking shots at us and that to protect the uh, 47s. The boss didn't want me to throw smoke because he says to me, he's like, no, I don't want to attract attention. I'm like, okay, VS-17 panel it is because that's, you know, primary alternate sort of for marking. So I've run out with this metre-by-metre VS-17 panel, which in my eyes is no different than throwing smoke. That just attracts bullets to me. And I'm out there. It's a, it's a giant and because orange. Still fairly, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was camouflaged on the back, but it was still fluoro orange on one side. How I didn't get shot at, I don't know. Anyway, I, I, I gave all the stuff to the A-10s because he was a fat guy, so he's controlling the skies. And I just said, yeah, look, you know, no fires here, just let me know sort of thing. Anyway, the 40, 247s come in, and I didn't know this because I was fairly – like I'd only been – you know, that was 2010. I'd only just finished my training, went on work up and went over. So I didn't know this about aircraft. But obviously when helos are in finals, they, you know, you can't just sort of give it some cyclic and, and power up and get away. Like once they're there, they're sort of committed. They've either got, you know, yep. They can't sort of just power up and put down here. They've got to fully power up and get out of there or, and do a go around or they've just got to sort of, you know, land. So the first, I'm like going, shaking it, and I was like, yep, cool, putting it away. I'm like thinking they're just going to land over the top of me because that was the brief that I gave them in the LZ brief to sort of land, you know, whatever it was, east of me or something like that. First one, pardon me, the first one comes down and nearly lands on me, and I'm like, this thing's going to land on me. And as you know, road wash from 47s isn't exactly easy to stand up, and I'm carrying 40 to 50 kilos still because I've still got all my old batteries and, and everything. Like that. And it was the old radio, so the old 5590. So none of this stuff that the kids get today with the little 152s and everything. But So I'm still carrying a bit of weight, in mainly in radios, and I've got like three radios on me at the time. And so it's sort of blowing me down a bit, and then the second one is going to land on me. So I'm like picking this, like crawling on all fours, trying to stand up with this pack on. Rotor washers coming in. I get ragdolled across the across the land across the landing zone. The pack comes up, hits me in the back of the head. I get and I just smash myself down. And I've got video footage, and I'll send it to you because the boys uh, took the piss out of me. But I got knocked out for a couple of minutes, and I was supposed to get on the first helo. And obviously, your drills are obviously you've got one person each helo. They know how many men they've got to get on the helo, so they count them off. Then they give the thumbs up to the you know, load, crew chiefs, load masters, and obviously power up and go away. Because there was shots going down, obviously the pilots were a bit antsy here and all the uh, aircraft chatter of all you know suppressing targets and everything like from the A10s. Yeah. They, the first aircraft before they got the ramp up. Um, so my mate, who's a good mate of mine, he was doing the counting. He was the 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 senior enlisted for the commandos at that time and or for the commando platoon that I was working with. And he's, before he could tell the um, the loadmaster or crew chief, um, yeah, we've got them, the ramp's up and they're powering up and they're off because they didn't want to hang around. And he's like yelling at the, he's yelling at the crew chief going, I've got one guy down there, I've got one guy. Anyway, so they've managed to, they said, no, nah, we're out. And so they've radioed, radioed through to the second aircraft that had already had ramp up, so I sort of come to. I was only out for a bit, come to, and the ramps up, and I could hear the rotors powering up. And then, then I, then I just like I'm just legging it by this stage. Adrenaline's going. I'm legging it, and somehow the crew chief see me, and the the, the information's gotten through. So there's video helmet cam footage from the guys inside. I think I might have the helmet cam footage on my Instagram, where, um, or at least a still of it of me running in, but um. Yeah, he's got helmet cam footage of the ramp going up. 
and you can hear it powering up and then ramp goes down and then I just run out of this dust cloud onto into the helo and just sort of throw myself onto the thing and it ramps up and powers off. And But funnily enough, that first aircraft uh, took actually had a fair, fair few bullet holes in it as it took off. So I don't know whether it was copping them on the ground. The helo, the second one that I ended up being on, didn't have any. But the boys thought it would be funny to make a video out of that helmet cam and they've just to take the you know take the piss out of me to have a bit of a laugh and they've got the video footage they've cut it in with a few other pictures but it's the chariots of fire you know that dun, 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 I was going to say you know, yeah it has to be chariots so, of fire yeah, and then, and then someone running this dust cloud. yeah so yeah it's definitely it's definitely good it's yeah and that's the other good thing about um, special operations is obviously you're not as restricted by rules and you know because one of the bombs I, or two of the bombs I dropped on that trip, the first two 500 pounders went lower water. So they didn't blow up. They sort of, one had a low explosion, the other one sort of broke in half and rolled down the hill. And all I got was just an absolute roasting over the net from all the boys going, What type of crap JTAC are you? You can't even get bombs right. You know, we only bring you on these jobs for one thing and, and you can't even do that. And I just got hammered until I dropped the three 500 pounders, which sort of redeemed, redeemed myself in everyone's eyes. Uh, yeah, I just yep. got hammered. So. Yep, no matter what, it's always the JTAC's fault with uh, if something yeah. goes wrong with the bombs. Yeah, I mean, we gave our JTAC's a pretty hard time. You know, I was a, a weather guy and, and all the other stuff, so I took my fair amount of uh, a ribbing as well. Uh, but, like, those those crazy experiences that you had, um, I, I think it's interesting that uh, we haven't even talked about it yet, and we're, we're coming close on time, is you ended up writing a book, but I, I also look at a lot of your posts, and you talk about um, emotional intelligence and all these other things. And the the idea that so many of, of so many people that do what we do kind of turned into like this like savage type scholar, you know what I mean? Um, mm. There's something about the experiences that makes you introspective, and then you know you wrote your book and all the other stuff. Like what what about those experiences? Did it did it change who you are, or were you always like um, in tune with uh, you know emotional intelligence and taking care of people and all that other kind of stuff? No, no, it changed. It's definitely changed who I am. It, like I changed as a person. So I was uh, I medically retired uh, after that 21 years. I I went through a bit of a mental, like not a bit of, I went through mental health issues. So I got diagnosed with PTSD. People have been telling me for years that, yeah, you've changed, there's something different about you. And finally, you know, push comes to shove and I had to accept it. So, And I mean, going through that journey and it's not, I'm not out the other side. It's like a never-ending road. Sort of people sit there and go, "Oh, you're out the other side." I'm going, "No, there's days like I could sit here and just seize the world and operate up here, and then there's days where I can't get out of bed down here." And I believe that changes you. And I'm like, I've focused on emotional intelligence for a long time because, you know, it's linked in with that critical thinking, that unbiased decision making, and I think that critical thinking has a lot to do with the job. Like you can't just sit there and have that bias with your thought process because it's not always going to be the correct answer. So I've become, I suppose, you know, the boys sit there and go, oh, you used to be such a hard charger and, you you know, you didn't take shit from anyone. Now you're just a softy and, you know, but it's it's the way it goes. So, yeah, and I think that's just rolled over into writing and to helping other people uh, like that. So, Well, and, and look, if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about the book. Like what's what's in the book? The book is called uh, Havoc 06. Yeah, so Havoc and, 06 um, is my call sign. So when you qualify as an Australian combat controller, uh, completely qualify, you get a Havoc call sign. So, you know, um, just like, you know, uh, US combat controllers use Ironside in places and, and things like that. So use a different con- – uh, if you're deployed in a combat environment, it'll be a different uh, call sign. But you get a Havoc call sign here in Australia. So I was Havoc 06, so the six qualified 
Um, and it goes in you know, numerical order when you finish the courses. If you're, top, if you're in a you know, peer group of, say, five or six, it's who, who finished top gets the you know, bottom one. Um, so you go from there. There's already... Uh, they've already put aside, though, Havoc 69. I think they're going to bid on that and they're going to donate the money to charities. <laughs> so if you're over that one. So if, uh, sorry to any of the people that, that are friends. But, uh, um, yeah, so, yeah, the book is – it's a bit about – it's an overview of my life story, so a bit about my childhood, um, my time in the security forces. Uh, there's a few chapters to Fallen Friends because, you know, as as you, as you know, you don't go through this sort of career field. And, I mean, people don't go through their life without having Fallen Friends. But I lost a lot to uh, combat action. I lost a lot to, you know, um, suicide. I think it's is it is a plateau that says only the dead have seen the end of war, you know. And another person, I can't remember who it was, but, you know, he, he quotes that once you – if you touch war, war touches your back sort of thing. So, yeah, some people deal with it and don't have an issue, but there's a lot of people, like on, a lot of guys that I went to went to war with are struggling. So, yeah, it talks about that. Um, there's a few combat stories in there from uh, both Afghanistan and Iraq. And then it goes into a bit of, it goes into, you know, the survey stuff with V-Dub and Sully. Like, it's the standing up of combat control. It's a bit of my life story. It's a bit of everything and combat stories in there. And then it finishes off with how it affected um, my relationships, not only with my my children, um, but, you know, relationships of an intimate kind and how, how it affected that because I was always away. Obviously started suffering the mental health issues. So I was either really, really, like, high-level angry and just wanted to burn the world to the ground. Or I'd sit there and just cry over a TV show, which I never do, and it's just, yeah, what's what's going on? So it talks it talks about that. Um, so I just wanted to share my story because now Australia's not in Afghanistan. I don't want these stories forgotten. I don't want the people forgotten. And uh, if I can help one person by telling my story about mental health, then to me I've achieved something. That's why I try and volunteer with a couple of organisations here. Well, not try to. I do volunteer with a couple of organisations here in Australia. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that definitely hits home. Um, and, and then, you know, like I, it is weird getting older because, you know, when you're younger and you're just like full of, you know, piss and vinegar and, and don't take crap from anybody and you think <laughs> you're right about everything. But like, I think yep. there's something that happens through your career where like, I, you want to give people the benefit of the doubt, right? You want to see the best in people and you want to help them out and achieve their goals because I, I mean, I don't know what it is. It's just like, I think it's a fairly unique thing about the community where most, most guys come out the other side with their struggles Right. But also, um, I don't know, for a, a greater capacity to, to try to understand people and to help them out. And I'm not really sure really why that happens or uh, or if I'm misreading the situation. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. I, I can't understand it. Just, I think it's just maybe you get mature with old age. But yeah. at the same time, uh, my girlfriend, you know, she calls me Peter Pan a lot of the time anyway. And my, the boys gave me the nickname Peter Pan, the person who never grows up. So. I don't know. You develop empathy, but yeah. It, yeah, I get a kick out of not a kick, but it is that satisfaction. Yeah, you know, it it helps me, but it also it helps me by helping them and seeing the rewards from it. Yeah, you know, especially with mentoring a couple of people that I do, um, and even just the keynote speaking. You know, tailor ta- tailoring that to to what obviously the client wants, but the end state of it is, you know, I've helped these people. So yeah, yeah it's good. I enjoy that. Absolutely. Hey, well, I, I know we want to invite you back on because Peaches couldn't make it. You guys are both combat controllers, so you guys can, you know, JTAC nerdery out and all that other stuff. Um, but, yeah. I, but I did want to ask, 
you know, like um, kind of a two part question. What's what's next for you? You know, you've written a book and you're you've uh, gotten out of the military. And then um, on the backside of that, what is what is some advice that you would give to somebody, you know, Australian, American, anybody uh, that's thinking about um, getting into one of these types of career fields? Uh, execute your decision. So that's the biggest thing I've seen. And especially with the, so I'll just answer the second part first, if because that'll lead into the, the first part. Uh, execute your decision. The biggest thing I've seen in the corporate speaking uh, side of things, as well as uh, mentoring people, is people have no issues problem solving, you know. And well, I talk to them about critical thinking, but the problem solving part that comes out of the critical thinking, people have no issues identifying what they need to do it's dropping the hammer on that execution which i think the military trains you quite well for is that execution phase of the mission and that's all i look at it at you know life's a mission this you know new part of my life's a mission so it's that it's that execution so just make your mind up go for it give it a hundred percent and i mean there's so many motivational speakers out there you can listen to goggins jocko you know we've got a few here in australia as well like that you know those people really do inspire you know one of the biggest people and I never got to deploy with him, but one of the biggest people, I met him, um, he was a very inspiring character. He's uh, He won our VC here in Australia, uh, post, you know, posthumously, unfortunately, and a VC for American viewers is the equivalent of Medal of Honor, um, Cam Baird. And he used to write on his locker, he was a team leader, he used to write on his locker, aspire to inspire. And I don't, like, I don't, that's his phrase, I don't use that, but to me, that aspire to inspire is such an inspirational, um, you know, such an inspirational thing. So, to the anyone looking to get in the career field, it's it's not easy. It's not for everyone. But you know, have a crack at it. Give it a hundred percent because you're still doing more than ninety percent of the other population by just having a go. So, and you know, it, it isn't for everyone. That's why there is a selection process because it is specially selected people. And look. I can't say any more on that topic, I suppose, which leads into the next one. I, I want to like, spend all my time trying to volunteer, uh, get some organisations up and running, and on the side part of that, uh, start up my business because it suits me. Doing a nine-to-five job just doesn't work with my mental health at the moment. Like, there's days where I wouldn't be able to go to work. Like, I'd, And it might sound funny. People probably sit there and go, oh, look at him talk, and um, you know, he seems all right at the moment. He must be just putting it on, but that's great. But tomorrow, for some reason... I just have a bad night of sleep and bad night of dreams and stuff, and I'll just wake up, and I just don't leave the house. I can't get out. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to speak to people. I just want to be left alone. And so starting my own business with doing the, the coaching, like the personal life coaching side of things, that's, that's where I want to go, and that's, that's where it's slowly going at the moment, and it's baby steps. And I, I mean, yeah, it First of all, it, it, it's been an honor to, to sit here with you for an hour and chit chat, and I really appreciate you doing it. And, and I, I, I'm inspired. And I, I, I think one of the reasons we do this podcast, for me at least, is, is it's selfish because I get to sit down with people like you and you share your story. And I, I get to, to move on the rest of my life uh, after, after having spent an hour with you. So uh, I really appreciate it and uh, looking forward to having you on this podcast again. And um, yeah, uh, everybody out there. As we wrap up, make sure you uh, like, subscribe, all that other stuff, and uh, and make sure you leave some comments asking Troy to come back and talk uh, JTAC nerdery with uh, with Peaches. <laughs> I want to hear more about SR. I know nothing about it. My, my only thing that I know is the old combat weatherman and sit there and blow up the helium balloon and let it up and then put the inclinometer up and get the winds. 
Oh my goodness. Well, I mean, that was definitely part of the job, but uh, you know, we, we just dropped a, an episode uh, with the career field manager about SR, um, but maybe okay, you'll have to come on two more times and, and we can do uh, crack in the nut on making Australian uh, pararescue and SR guys. And then yeah. um, we'll also talk about JTAC stuff with peaches. You just got to plant the seed, just plant the seed and yeah, you know, it sprouts or, or just, you know, that's uh, inception. Just let it that's out right. there and they will, they will come. All right, so you heard it here first. We're going to Leonardo DiCaprio, Australia, into making fair rescue guys, and that's our guys. Uh, uh, Troy, thanks again for coming on, and for everybody else out there, uh, train hard. Oh, thanks, brother. And, uh, yeah, we'll catch you all later.